So, Craig, what is new, uh, new and good on Broadway right now? Oh Lord, that's that's a value judgment, Carrie, because. What appeals to one person doesn't necessarily appeal to another. Some people love musicals, some people hate musicals. Uh, all I can tell you is to go see as much as possible. I've, I've been taken to shows that I, I knew I was going to hate and I ended up loving them. I've been to shows that I re couldn't wait to see and I hated them. I try to go cold. That is to say, I, I rarely will read the reviews before I see the show. I want to make up my own mind about the show. I don't want to read what the critics say because very often uh, I disagree strongly with the critics. I don't think they see the same show I do. Some things that they hate, I loved, and vice versa. It depends. So when you ask me what's good on Broadway, I would say, uh, it depends. What do you like? If I love a musical and you hate musicals, it doesn't matter what I say, you're not going to like it. Right. I think the best thing for us in, here in New York is to go to on 47th and... Broadway, they, they call it Times Square, it's not really Times Square, it's Duffy Square to begin with, but nevertheless, and it's uh, a place called TKTS, which is set up by the Theater Development Fund. TKTS. TS. Okay. Uh, it's an abbreviation for tickets. And what they have done, uh, Broadway would prefer, well, theater in general, would prefer to sell tickets at full price. At a certain point, the show is not sold out, so I'm either going to eat those empty seats, or they came up with the idea of this, this booth there on, on Duffy Square, so they can sell the tickets at half price, whatever's left over. Uh, they're selling half price for that particular day. You can't buy them for uh, next Thursday, right for today. And some of them, most of them are 50% off, some are 30% off, 25%, it varies, and they, they'll tell you what it is. Can, can you get it online? No. Uh, Can you call in and get it? And no, get them? No. no. You, you need to physically, your warm body needs to be present. Uh, and there's a listing on both sides, the east and the west side of the booth itself, that tells you what shows they have. Read those listings. Don't go to the window and say, do you have tickets for Hamilton? No, they don't have tickets for Hamilton. Hamilton's not up on the boards. If it's on the board, they have it. If it's not, they don't have it. And what they will do is to give you the best seats that are available. Don't ask for, do you have two on the aisle, six rows back? No, if you want that, go to the box office. Right. Uh, if it's a show, for instance, that, that I just can't live without seeing, then I go to the box office, I bite the bullet, and I pay full price for it. Mm -hmm. But I live here. So if I, if I don't see the show today, I can see it next week or the week after uh, at, at half price. It's much easier that way. Mm -hmm. That's what I always tell people. Coming in from out of town or whatever, coming from out of town is a little different because you're here for a limited period of time. You really want to see this show. Okay, right into the box office, pay full price and you've, you've got the show. You're gonna pay for it, but that way you'll have your tickets. So I, I'm not being coy with you, it's just that I can't tell you what's good, uh, what's not good because uh, what, what, are you, what do you like? I would say as the old comedian said, you pays your money, it takes your chances. Who said that? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I'll get, I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. Well, no so, so I, look, I, I know you're, you're, in, uh, uh, you're busy. I asked you to do this. I've been asking you and calling you and saying, Craig Hutchison, would you please uh, let me interview you for my podcast? Um, so I, I'm going to let you go. Uh, but what are you working on right now? Well, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> I'm getting ready to go into rehearsals for a production of Garrett's Faust that we'll do in October. And how long have you been working on Faust? And um, is it, is it uh, traditional Faust? Oh, yes. <laughs> Faust is male. Yeah. Marguerite is female. Okay, okay. Um, I've been toying with this for a couple of years and seriously started in uh, about a year ago I guess it was what I have a theater group and we normally in the program will put what we're doing next so from the last show I've been pretty much committed to doing Faust uh, I would tell you I would share one thing with you that I always tell my students not to do but I'm going to do it and I'll tell you why I'm doing it 
in the situation of the costumes. Faust is set in medieval Germany. Well, the costumes for the males should be late Gothic period. I don't like the way the males look in late Gothic. I do like the way the women look in late Gothic. So the women will be in late Gothic, the long pointed sleeves and the, uh, the conical hats with the, the veil dragging from behind it. But the men uh, have magically managed to get uh, a couple of hundred years into the future and they will be dressed as Renaissance. Now I did this in cold blood because I like the way the men look in Renaissance costumes better than the women uh, so it's 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 what I'm t what I tell students anybody who listens to me, be consistent, put it one way or the other, and I'm doing this deliberately because I think visually I think it works better. Uh, I did this once before, and I was a little nervous about it. How would this go over? Well, no one said a word about it. So first of all, probably in the audience is going to be maybe a handful of people that would even know the difference to begin with. What I'm banking on is the fact that you will look at it and accept them because of the characters and what they're doing and the time period and not worry about it. You never, uh, or do you, yes you do, because you just told us earlier, uh, look for controversy because you've done it. You, you, you've taken something, turned it entirely, Oscar Wilde play and turn it upside down, but you knew your why, um, why you were doing that, how you want. But in this, in Faust coming up in October, um, traditional, you don't look for controversy. You don't look for, ooh, this could be interesting to get attention. I I don't go out of my way to find controversy. I don't avoid it, but I don't go out of my way to, to find it. I try and, and do a show that tells a good story mm. and go from there. The, the most controversial one I ever did, which caused pickets, was... Uh, pickets? Jesus, oh, yes. Jesus Christ Superstar. This was in southwest Missouri, a very a relatively conservative area. And of course the show had never played there before. And there were those who were just highly upset because it's called Jesus Christ Superstar. It's a rock opera. Well, the rock people across the, around the world were upset because it was called an opera. Opera people around the world were upset because it was a rock show. It was a, it was a problem to begin with. I thought it was a good show. I liked the show. It's a, a rock opera, but it's based on the biblical stories of Christ. So I had no problems with it. We had, I don't remember now, seven or eight different denominations, uh, Christian denominations were in the show. The Ministerial Alliance uh, objected strongly and they wanted uh, me to reverse the show, would cancel it. I declined after asking, have you seen the show? No, no. Have you read the show? Absolutely not. I said, so you really don't know anything about it. Well, that was not satisfactory. They, they wanted it closed because, and I'm not making this up, because I was portraying Jesus as homosexual and he was having an affair with Mary. And I said, excuse me, excuse me here. Um, if we were portraying Jesus as homosexual, which we weren't, why is he having an affair with Mary? And secondly, if he's having an affair with Mary, which is also not what we're doing, how would he be homosexual? I'm, I'm just curious about this. Well, they, no, no. So the Ministerial Alliance did not prevail, and we did the show, and opening night there were pickets. Their heart wasn't in it, but they were across the street, and they, I mean, sin, sin, and I thought, oh, that's kind of sad. Uh, we, the show finished its run. We weren't sold out, but we had good audiences, and I never looked back on it. So if you just want to tell the story, yes, and I want to tell it this way, and if it's traditional, I'll tell them that I'm not, you're not going for any uniqueness and this is, well, what, what is, yeah, what is, is, is your focus, is your key to doing all these in New York City now is honesty or 
honesty and telling the truth and telling a good story, period. That's that's the basis for anything I would do on stage. It it needs to be a good story. Mm-hmm. If I don't like the story, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I, for instance, I would never direct West Side Story. You mentioned earlier, I would never direct West Side Story. Not because I don't like the show, but West Side Story needs to be directed by a choreographer. And I'm not a choreographer. Oh. And that's the, the sort of thing. So I need to like the story to begin with. And from there, how can I do this? When... Um, when I did the Oresteia, uh, the three tragedies that make up the Oresteia, there's a lot we know about Greek theater. There's a lot we don't know. So I'm making some hopefully educated guesses on the thing. And again, uh, audiences liked it. We had to add uh, seats for the opening night. We know, for instance, that the, the Greek chorus sang. That's about our knowledge of it. What do they sound like? We really don't know. We can make some guesses. We, we know from wall paintings and, sta- and uh, vases and all this what some of the instruments were look like. But insofar as what they sounded like, we really don't know. We know they danced. Uh, what, are they, what sort of dancing? Well, we know that for the satyr plays, they were pretty bawdy, pretty earthy. The Greeks had no problem with earthy humor. It's only the great irony is the more sophisticated we become, the more provincial we become. And oh, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, that's shocking. Well, the Greeks had no problem with it. They're, they're, they're dealing with human beings. And mankind is kind of raucous at times, kind mm-hmm. of earthy, kind <laughs> of body. So we did what we could, and I, I used Greek for, for this, the chanting of the chorus. We used a <coughs> Gothic chant, the, the Gregorian chant, which is not, we know that's not what they would have sounded like. But Greek... Eastern music is essentially on a, a different basis, and the the chorus would have had to have learned from scratch uh, the tone system that was used, and it's just more trouble than it's worth. And what I did, and this, again, this was a choice, a directorial choice. We had them chanting as with Gregorian chants, so the the audience had a sense of the chorus singing. And they moved, they didn't dance per se, but they moved. And so what I hopefully gave the audience was a sense of, of what the Greeks would have seen. How accurate was it? Well, probably the ancient Greeks would have been horrified, but we don't know what they did. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't go looking for controversy, but if you're gonna do this show, you need to analyze it and see what is called for, what you have to have. Uh, decide on your casting and go from there. Mm-hmm. And it's a roll of the dice and hopefully St. Genesius will protect you <laughs> and you'll have a good show. You said go for casting. Now I saw in your office on your desk uh, actors, pictures and resumes and, and uh, all this. Can and now do actors and you were saying that you have a sponsor uh, of this show, or your show's previous, a couple previous shows? Well, in other words, a pro- uh, some, you were a producer, and you went out and got some... some uh, we have been very fortunate money. over the last several years. There has been an anonymous donor who has uh, given us money. This is, uh, this is a dangerous thing to assume it's going to happen forever, because it's of the generosity of this particular individual. Mm-hmm. So that the, the cost of shows, I consider the show a success if the box office pays the cast mm-hmm. and I underwrite the production cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the reasons we don't do more shows than we do. Can, uh, can actors and people contact you and send their, no, through, uh, through, uh, Backstage, which is online, you said backstage is the the you, the newspaper, the magazine. It's online. Yes, backstage is the uh, professional theaters, um, essentially advertising, and they will list <clears throat> all auditions for Broadway shows, off Broadway shows, and some off off Broadway shows. And what they do is to list: this is the show, this is the group that's doing it. They will list the director. Uh, sometimes a producer, and here are the roles that are open. 
this is what an actor will look at to see should I submit myself for this audition. If the role, in your case for instance, if the role uh, is listed as advertised that we, we need a 12-year-old girl, then don't submit your resume. You're not going to get that role. Mm -hmm. And you look at, uh, they'll generally give you the age, uh, if it matters for gender, if it matters for race, whatever the requirements are. As in Othello, I think we talked about this earlier, Othello has to be black. Desdemona has to be white. Racism is an issue in that show. You can't have both of them being black, the show will fall apart. You can have both of them white, the show will fall apart. Mm -hmm. It has to be that way. And so the casting will list what you're going to do. And you change that <clears throat> at your peril. I'm not saying you can't do it, but the fact that you can doesn't mean you should. Read the script, decide what's in it, and backstage will tell you uh, what you want to submit for. In the case of Faust, we had a number of, uh, I don't remember the exact number, we had a number of, of um, submissions, and it was a pretty short fuse on the thing. And what they did was submit online, and uh, I have an individual who goes through those, and she looks at all the, the applicants, and there are some individuals that you think, this is, uh, don't bother. And so she called uh, several of them out, and then she submitted the rest of them to me, and we pulled in a bunch, and they oh, physically came in. Uh, with their resumes and auditioned in person. And from that, uh, we cast the rest of the show, and only one person has turned us down so far, and that individual turned us down because he'd been cast in Richard III. Here in New York, yes. Richard III? Yes. Oh, wow, wow. And I say, wow, that's pretty pretty good. Well, perhaps. And, yeah. <laughs> no. he's, he's not getting a Christmas card. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay, okay. Now, how, how can people get in touch with you the, if they would want to get in touch with you for directing, editing their books and, and articles and, and, uh, and blogs? And how can they get in touch with you? Well, the easiest thing, I suppose, is to do it by email, uh, Craig, C-R-A-I-G, 628, at hotmail.com. Craig... When, Spelled again. C-R-A-I-G. C-R-A-I-G. 628. 628. At hotmail.com. At hotmail.com. One of the things you didn't mention, um, all the time I get uh, submissions of people who want to be in shows, uh, actors' resumes. And I have a, a folder of these that uh, I look at the individual. And physically, is this a person that I might want to consider for another show? Not this show, but another show. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I've in the past, I have called people that I haven't seen or heard from in two or three years, but I've kept their information. So if they want to submit something like that to me, I, it's fine, I have no objection. But the easiest thing is just Craig628 at Hotmail.com. When you look at these pictures, pictures first, does a resume really count? What if they haven't done very much on, the, and they, on their resume? but physically look like somebody that you might cast in the future. Again, you're asking a more complicated question than you mean to. Physically, you need to look at the picture first. If this is an individual who's going to play a role that's 70 years old and they're obviously a high school individual, it doesn't matter their experience. Mm -hmm. So you look at it physically. I don't... And the, the sheet that I hand out, I don't ask for their background. First of all, I don't care. And secondly, I didn't see the show. So you may have had, you may have played Hamlet, but what was the production like? It may have been horrible, in which uh, case it's worthless. I don't care about that. I will look at their, their background and see what they've done. But by and large, I look at them and then listen to them, first of all. An audition, uh, the audition is a crapshoot. I hate them because you never know what you're going to get. And you listen to the individual, how do they sound? Do they, do they sound nasal? And you're gonna cast them as Professor Higgins and, and that's not going to work. So you listen to what they say. How do they look? How do they move? How do they walk? And all of this goes into it. And then I'll look at their, their resume and see what they've done. They may have done the same show that I'm, uh, uh, I'm casting them for. They may have not. They may not know the show. Uh, I do a lot of obscure works that people don't know when they come in. 
And so I have to either give them a blurb about it or explain it, or maybe they've done their homework and looked it up. But you look at it first. And and that's an asset if they've done their homework a little bit before they've gone, they go in for this Correct. audition. On, uh, on Faust, there was one individual, and he said that he had... Uh, he had looked us up, the company, he'd looked the company up online, and he'd looked me up online. I'm not sure what he found. I was reluctant to ask him, but where, he showed up for online? audition. What, uh, I have no idea Facebook what he did. Or I have Instagram? no idea. I have no idea. I didn't ask him. He looked you up. That's what he said. And he looked up... The company. The company. What's the name of the company? Black Orchid. Black Orchid. Oh, okay. All right. So people can look you up online. Black Orchid. Well, that's probably where, where he looked you up. Black Orchid Company, boom, your I name have, is there. I have no idea where he went. Because <laughs> you got somebody else do this for you? Ah, I see, I see. Greg, thanks an awful lot. I, I, I am so excited that we had this time because I've been saying for maybe a year and a half, Greg, may I interview you? And you've been saying yes, but... You're always so busy running around. So I thank you so very, very much. My pleasure, Carrie. Anytime. Good afternoon. Moving your energy differently, community. This is Carrie Ruff. I am so excited today to have with us Craig Hutchison, uh, who is a director in New York City, director of theater. And Craig, it's a pleasure to see you, hang out with you today. Uh, <laughs> could you uh, give our Moving Your Energy Differently community a little history of uh, who you are and what you do? Well, Carrie, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, my name is Craig Hutchison. I'm originally from Southwest Missouri. I've been in New York for 30-some years, and I can't imagine living anywhere else. Well, that's not entirely accurate. I would be in London if I could afford it. But other than that, it's New York. Uh, I've been in the military. I've taught on a college level. Uh, I do shows, and that pretty much keeps me off the street. I, I do these things because I can't not do them. My first show, for instance, and I don't think you know this, uh, I was in... Um, Oh, Lord, it must have been kindergarten, or at least the first act, a first grade. We had neighbors who had draw drapes. Most elegant thing I'd ever seen in my life. We didn't have draw drapes. And so my very first production, you laugh, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, the, my very first production, I staged the Lord's Prayer. I had a book that had an illustrated uh, page that had the Lord's Prayer on it, and I propped that in the window, closed the drapes, made everybody sit down, and I dramatically opened the drapes, and that was my first epic. And and that was just a few years ago. Now you've you've been directing plays, producing plays in New York City for quite some time. Uh, how did you? You came from Missouri, Missouri, <laughs> and um, why? Why did you come to New York City? Well, at the time, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my dad died, and I was in a position to make the move, and I thought, if I don't move now, I never will, because uh, I was just going to nickel and dime everything away. And it was either going to be San Francisco or New York, because mm. I, I adore San Francisco and I adore New York, and I couldn't decide which one, one or the other, and it was, it was almost a flip of the coin. A friend of mine had a business in San Francisco at the time, and I thought, all it would take is one word from that individual, and I'd go to San Francisco. The word never came, so I thought, well, and so I went to New York. About a month afterwards, he closed his business in San Francisco and moved back to the East Coast anyway. So it was obviously a sign from above. Now, how, how many shows have you done in New York? Um, in New York only? Yes, just in New York only. Um, I would be reluctant to give you the exact number, probably um, 50, 60. 50, 60? Well, maybe more, I don't know. How many have you produced? Um, most of those I end up producing myself because it's just easier. A producer is the, the money individual and they need to raise the money. If I'm the producer and the director, I don't have to get anybody's permission, I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that also means that I'm then 
the one that's responsible for paying whatever needs to be paid, whether it's actors, scenery, costumes, makeup, or whatever, royalties. Over the years, has it been easier? Has it gotten easier for you? 50, 60 productions in New York City, has it been, like right now, is New York City the theater mecca? Not I'm not talking about Broadway, but I'm talking about the the mecca of starting a theater company, running a theater company, or finding a space for theater? Is it Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going. Is it hmm, the place to be now for theater? Not talking about television, cable, online, social media. Is it the place for theater to grow and develop still as it was in the '50s and '60s? Theater can be done anywhere, and we're delusional if we, if we think that good theater can only be done in New York. However, having said that, we're also delusional if we think that it, it cannot be done in New York. New York has the most number of actors, the most number of, of theatrical spaces, the most number of... It's New York. And when you talk about professional theater, the first thing that's going to come to most people's mind is going to be New York. Now, is there good theater done west of the Hudson? Of course there is. All sorts of places. Community theater, for instance, usually gets a bad rep. In some cases, it's well-deserved. But there can be some wonderful productions in community theaters. Because they're not Broadway, because they're not that sort of thing, uh, where we can have uh, review in the Times and that sort of thing, people put it down. And that's terribly unfair. Having said that, of course, sometimes the productions lack a little professionalism. Mm. And by professionalism, I don't necessarily mean you get paid. I mean there's an attitude about being professional. You want the production to be as good as it can be. There used to be an acting text called uh, Acting is Believing. I don't know if it's even still printed or not anymore, but that's essentially the whole thing about theater. You have to believe. When an audience comes into the theater, uh, they engage in what's called the willing suspension of disbelief. Uh, you see an actor on stage, they shoot somebody, the person falls over. Now you know they didn't really die, but because you willingly suspend your disbelief, you accept the fact that for the purpose of the play, um, opera, whatever, the person is, is dead. One of the most difficult things to explain to a child going to their first, uh, first show is the curtain call. Because of the way we grow up today with movies and television, children will accept death. Uh, they have no problems with that. What confuses them is the person they just saw killed comes out and takes a bow at the end of the show. Mm. And that's difficult to explain to them. It's all magic. It's all make-believe. And the more I can make the audience believe, uh, the better off I'm going to be as an actor, the better off my production is going to be, and I think the more the audience is going to get out of it. Do people, are people still excited to go to the theater? I think so. To come out from their computers, to come out from their homes? I think so. Uh, statistics would indicate that Broadway is, is raking in more money than ever. But of course, that's partially because they've jacked up the prices so high. But I think you have people who uh, will save their money. Uh, tourists came in, come into town, and one of the things they want to see is a Broadway show. Uh, they don't necessarily make the distinction between Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off-Broadway. They want to see uh, a New York show is what they really mean. And if they're coming from a, a city or a town that has community theater, they will compare what they saw at their community theater to what they're seeing in New York. And sometimes New York doesn't hold up as well as their community theater does. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does, obviously. You've got more money, you've got more resources, and it's it's what you expect as the professional theater in New York. Uh, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, there are all sorts of places across the country. Uh, there's the, the Actress Studio, there's the Actress Theater, there's all sorts of places across the country, but overall, yes. Um, you'd have to say that New York is still 
the epic center of theater in the United States. You constantly pride yourself on communication. You do or you don't? I, I, well, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in connecting communication to connect. Now, you're also an editor. I have been known to do so. Yes. So, as an editor, use of words, and you're a director, then you're a communication coach? Oh, dear. Um, the whole thing on on communicating, whether we're talking about an academic situation, uh, professional business, or the stage, or whatever, you're trying to get a message across. And how you do that, uh, Jack Lemmon once was quoted as saying the, the, the secret to good acting is sincerity. He went on to say, if you can fake that, you got it made. And while that seems a little facetious, he's, he's pretty right. The audience is, as I said, the audience has to believe. This is why the situation of ethics is so terribly important in communicating. Don't lie to an audience. Mm -hmm. if, the, if you lie to the audience, you may get away with it. But all it takes is one person to, to recognize the fact that what you said is not true. And if they find out that you've lied once, then sit down, you're done. Because if you lied once, how do we know you ever told us the truth? This is the biggest problem that we have with, with amateurs who want to glorify themselves, who, people who have more power than brains. You have situations where people don't think before they speak. And when you do that, you may get away with it, but you're asking for trouble because, as I say, all it takes is one person and you're destroyed, you're done, whatever it happens to be. The play, obviously, we're talking about make-believe. People don't really die on stage. People don't do this on stage. It isn't really, uh, the, the blood is, is fake, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the audience has to accept that. And if something happens to where the audience doesn't believe the character, whether you're talking about a professional situation in, in American business, or you're talking about a thing from the stage in academia, I don't care. If the audience doesn't accept it, if they don't believe you, then you have nothing to say. You have nothing to communicate. It's not going to be possible. Why is it that when you edit also uh, executives' uh, blogs and books and all of their communication with each other. Why is it they called you in to say, make this better? Why, 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 and still do, why did they call you in for that skill that you have? They're just lucky, I guess. <laughs> that, I, I don't know how to answer that, Kerry. Um, why, why, why do they hire you to do that? Well, in some cases, they've been referred by other people. In some cases, it's uh, they overheard. It's I have no idea. Yeah, but why do they need it? Why do they feel they need it? Oh, well, that's much easier to answer because we write things and we know what they should say and we know what they do mean. One of the worst things you can do is try and edit your own work because you know what it says. And so you do that and, and you don't bother to read it carefully. For instance, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, and... Uh, other than the fact that I'm being recorded, I would probably deny it. I did a show. I edited the program. The show was done. Afterwards, I was at a, a, an editing situation for Corporate America, and I walked in, and the supervisor was laughing and said, I saw your show, and I said, well, that's nice. And she said, I have a question for you. I said, what's that? And she said, it's, it was curious as to whether or not I was changing my name. I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? My name was misspelled in the program that I had edited. Oh. Because, yeah, I know it was my name, I glanced at it and I saw my name because I knew this what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to edit your own work because you won't see the flaws. So that's why they call you in. Well, that's why they should call in any editor. And now there's a difference between proofreading and editing. A proofreader just reads what you wrote, and I will correct it grammatically or to make it where it makes sense, but I don't change anything on editing. That's a different story. Editing, you have a little more freeway, and, 
as to what you want to do. And you try to outguess what the person is really trying to say, mm -hmm. and you can suggest mm -hmm. uh, perhaps this would be a thing that you might want to consider. Uh, this isn't clear. Are you sure this is true? Editing is a little more, it's, it's essentially a step above proofreading. Proofreading is, is pretty much black and white. It goes out under your name, not mine. So whatever you want to say, if, if that's what you want to say, you want to say this is this, I, I can't do much about it. On editing, I can make some suggestions and comments. It's still your work, but editing, uh, a good editor will still be able to help you, uh, not necessarily change it, but to make it make sense. Are people saying, I want to connect faster, better, more effectively? That's why I need you to come in and direct my wording here? That's, that's part of it, I think. We want to make it clear, and today we're overwhelmed with information, with mm -hmm. knowledge, and this really, and we don't have time to read things. That's why you go through a newspaper, the New York Times or whatever, and nobody reads cover to cover the New York Times. What you do is to read the headlines, and that's why the headlines are there, so you know this is what this particular article is about. Yeah. If you're not interested in the subject, you go to the next one. You don't read word for word on everything, whether it's a magazine, newspaper, whatever. Uh, you, you, yes, I think we, we have to grab people's attention. Posters for shows uh, should be a visual indication of what the show is. And a good poster, uh, we've had a number in the past, uh, Cats was a good poster. Um, any of these that you can remember, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, those were all great posters because they grabbed your attention. They were different. They were new. There was something that uh, Footloose I thought was a horrible poster because I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, I don't want to see that. Yes. The, the graphics were such that it didn't engage me. It didn't cause me to want to see it. And so we, we, and we may miss out on some things because of that. But you look at something whether it's a headline, a poster, whatever, and if it grabs your attention, if it makes you want to see it, yes, they've done their job. It's a matter of a, it's essentially a persuasive speech because you're trying to sell it to an audience. Now, you also got uh, a, a degree in and been doing, uh, obviously, because you're a director and you're a producer of your, your own uh, shows over the years, you're also in set design. You also know about set design. Uh, <laughs> that grabs the interest of the the people that 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 the audience. The but but you you've been trained at that. Yes, under a brilliant professor, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. The, the set design is something that it sets the mood, it sets the setting, it sets the time in most cases for the show, and yet at the same time it should not be distracting. Uh, you don't want the audience leaving the theater humming the scenery. Uh, the audience should be, it should be a, an overall thing, costumes, lighting, scenery, and it should, no one particular thing should stand out. A good show tells a story. That's mm. the reason Shakespeare is still, to this day, mm. the number one produced playwright in the world. He tells good stories. Number one pr produced in the world. Play. In he the tells world. good stories. Now, you can do all sorts of strange things to Shakespeare, and we certainly have. But overall, the scenery sets the locale. It tells you the time and this sort of thing. A set designer, first of all, reads the play, uh, then comes up with some concepts, some ideas. Talk to the director because you may want to do it one way and the director says, no, 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 I don't want to do it that way, I want to do it this way. And so you throw out your scraps and you start all over again. Eventually you come up with a floor plan, a rendering or a model set, and you take this to the director and the director says, great, let's go with it. Okay, then it's up to you to see that it's built that way. Uh, obviously budgets get into it. Uh, you need to know the theater, the facility itself. Do you have flies? Is there wing space? Can you do this? Mm. Are there traps? What do you need? What can you use? And so all of that comes into it. The, the set designer uh, probably is the least appreciated of, of the theater craftspeople because 
You see it and you accept it and you move on. Costumes, you see, oh, aren't they pretty? Isn't that nice or whatever? And the lighting may impress you because it's sunrise, it's whatever. But the, the set designer is the one who the set rarely moves. In most cases, the set is there. You may change the setting, but the set itself doesn't move. We did that in the 19th century called a diorama, and the set actually moved. The people on stage uh, would stand there and make perhaps as if they were walking, and the scenery would move. Well, we haven't done that in years. Uh, it's just too much trouble now. It, it still happens. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's rare. Now, tell, tell me a story of the worst experience in directing that you have had over the years. Now, that what would you say, 50 or 60 in New York City, but you've directed in other states and other places over the years. What's the worst experience as a director? There are two areas on this that I would confess to. <laughs> confess? Well, yes. When, when you cast a show, well, for, first of all, when you select the, the script itself, that's your first minefield. You pick a show that interests you. If the show doesn't interest you, it's not going to interest the audience. Right. Uh, the show has to be of interest. Okay, I pick a show that I find interesting, that I think or hope will interest the audience. Okay, now we go to casting. Casting is a crapshoot. It is dangerous. I hate auditions on both sides of the table because you don't know. If I've not worked with you before, I don't know what you're going to be capable of doing. Some of us can audition beautifully, and that's all you're going to get. Some of us can't audition at all, and we're wonderful actors. And it's, it's really, you have no idea. And even if I've worked with you, even if I've seen you before, uh, you may have been wonderful in that particular role, but you're terrible in this show. So any director... So, how, excuse me, how, how, do you, how do you decide? How do you pick... Is it really a crapshoot? Is it yes. really? Yes. Uh, it's an educated... But, but can, can, after all these years, can you kind of look and say, he or she, that's got something? It's an educated guess, Carrie. You, you go with your gut instinct. You see an individual, uh, male or female, you take a look at this individual and you have a role in mind for them. And you think they can or cannot do it. Sometimes you're surprised. Any director that tells you they have never made a mistake in casting is either stupid or lying, one of the two. Because you do make mistakes. Sometimes you realize it early enough that you can repair it by simply replacing the actor. Sometimes it's too late. If it's the producer's girlfriend or boyfriend, that's a different story. We don't want to get into that. <laughs> but it, it does enter into it. Sometimes casting, you don't have much choice in the matter. A good producer will hire the director and leave them alone. But sometimes producers want to put their finger in the pie and suggest casting. This is a flashing red light and the director should walk away. Can you walk into a place and say, this is the place I want to use. It's got the acoustics. It's got the seats available. Can you walk into a place and see it and say, I, I want to rent this for a period of time and, and, and then budget out all the things that you have well, in, 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 in the city? You're, you're asking a multiple question there. Yeah, um, pretty good. Can, huh? can yeah. an individual walk in and say, well, sure, that's, it's a visual thing. Do you like the thing uh, visually? Does it appeal to you? Does it look... Um, when Cabaret was done at uh, the old Studio 54... Uh, so part of the paper was peeling off. It was degenerated, had been abandoned for a long time. It was a perfect place for cabaret because it fit the show. Uh, putting it in a brand new, spanking, uh, spotless place, that's not what cabaret needs. And so you have that sort of thing, which we should consider uh, visually is the first thing. You get a feel for it. Uh, there are theaters in New York uh, on a professional basis that regard, I mean, I couldn't afford to rent them, but regardless of the cost, I wouldn't touch. I don't like them physically. Mm. I think they're ugly places. And I, I what don't... Makes them ug what, why? What makes them ugly? Well, architectural choices, for one thing. 
uh, the lighting, the arrangement of seats, how it's done. Uh, theaters can be too big as well as too small. Uh, it, it's, I, I'm not being coy with you here, it's just that there are too many variables here in this equation. Uh, why do I want to play in this one rather than that one? I don't know. Uh, it just spoke to me. It, it was what I thought was, was ideal. If you offer me a thing, I didn't, the show didn't end up going on, but I was offered a position in directing a show in New Jersey, and it was to be at an old movie theater. Well, to me, now, they didn't say it was a movie palace. They said movie theater, in all fairness. And so I'm thinking movie palace. <laughs> when I got to where the thing was to be done, I thought, oh, dear God, this was a, it was a, an old movie house which had been abandoned since it was in use in the 50s. And it was like a movie house in the 50s. Plain, simple, unadorned, dull, and boring. And I tried to talk the producer out of it, but there's no, 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 this, oh, no, no. Well, that show fell apart for a number of reasons, chief of which he wasn't organized. But uh, you look at a place. Do you want your work to be done here? You can look at a place. Oh, I think anybody can. Why do you buy this house and not that one? Mm. Why do you rent this apartment not that one? You like it? You don't like it? Sometimes we can't even tell you why we don't like it. There's a feeling about it. I, I, don't, I don't think that buildings are necessarily haunted, uh, but there are shows. The Lundfontaine, for, uh, for instance, in Midtown, uh, that is a problematic house. It was not designed well. It was badly designed. And there haven't been many shows that have played there successfully. Uh, the house contributes to it. You have other shows, other houses that are in, in great demand, and they're rarely dark because producers want their shows in there. Because of the feeling well, yes. they get. The, the feeling, now, the visual. What if, what if you haven't been around that long? You're... You're 20 years old. You're 21 years old. Can you direct? Can you, can you be successful as a director? Uh, what if you're brand new, uh, social media director, you know, a webinar or whatever? I'm, I'm looking for, do you have to, can you be going off of just your instincts, feelings, and like I always say, just do it. That's my question. Can you? You've, you've been doing this for a while, so you have an eye for it. You've been casting actors. You have an eye for it. Can you say, I feel... Yeah, I like this. I would. You're gonna make mistakes. Yes. Period. Hopefully, lots. Yeah. Right. Not you, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. But most people don't do something because they're afraid they're going to fall, make a horrible mistake, lose their money, uh, their time, their credibility, if they have some at twenty, thirty. You know what? Can you say when you started? Yeah, just just go ahead, fall on your face, or when uh, take that chance from your and go from your instincts. Is that what you tell people? I knew I should have had you submit these questions in advance. <laughs> um, the, the most successful director in the world had to direct something once the first time. Hopefully you learn from it. No one is going to have a 100% perfect score on directing. It just doesn't happen. You're dealing with human beings. Um, when, you, when you start out, you have to have some experience. It's one of these conundrums. You have to have experience in order to be a good director. How do you get experience? You have to direct. Well, nobody's going to let you direct if you've never directed before. Well, it, it becomes a cycle. What what you need to until, do until you say I'm going to start this little thing and yes. I'm going to do it online or I'm going to do it in the small theater and do it. Most most places you can start directing in in college. Mm. 
occasionally in high school, but most of it will be in college, uh, community theaters, be an assistant director, uh, pick up things, pick up treats. Um, I, I work with a director and I learn things, but I'm not that individual. What's going to work for me is not necessarily what works for them. What works for them is not necessarily what's going to work for me. We're, we're two different people. We're not, we're not myrmidons here. So you learn by doing. And my suggestion is, and what generally happens in, high, in colleges, <clears throat> seniors will direct a one-act play. Why a one-act rather than a full-length play? Well, first of all, it's shorter. Uh, it's usually cheaper to do, and you can get some experience of, of working with actors. Actors are, are problem children because um, there's an ego that's involved. Uh, an actor has to trust the director. If the actor thinks the director knows what they're doing, they will more likely relax and, and be much better at it because they, they trust and they'll do uh, what the director wants, assuming the director's not gonna make them look bad. If the actor doesn't trust the director, that's a, a dangerous situation mm -hmm. because they're gonna dig in their heels and uh, resist everything you want them to do. Direct in college, direct in co on community theaters, direct whenever you get the chance. Uh, Jessica Tandy once said that people frequently asked her how to get in the theater and she said, I always tell them, uh, don't talk about it, do it. Mm -hmm. Do your church plays, yes. do your school plays, do your community plays. And she said, she went on to say that, always struck her, that too many people talk about it, but can't do it. And I've always remembered that because, uh, try it. And you, you mentioned about uh, not being successful, failing and all. A friend of mine opines the fact that in college in particular, this is where you should not be afraid to fail. You won't succeed if you don't try. If you are so conservative that you, you don't want to try anything that might be uh, problematic, it might be a challenge, it might be any one of a number of things, you're afraid. Don't direct. Go away. Do something else. Mm. A director needs to be willing uh, to try things. If they don't work, don't do it again. If they work, congratulations. Uh, trust is in, uh, is in a, a situation that's non-negotiable between an actor and a director. Uh, if the director has half a brain, and some don't, but if the director has half a brain, they will exude in an era of confidence. If the director looks unsure of themselves, if they look nervous, uh, your cast is not going to have faith in you. Your, your crew is not going to have faith in you. you. You told me one time that you don't like when... You're smiling at me, see. You're that you don't like it when a play is set up with and I, I well I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth here I'm not sure where you, you're going you, oh you're not no you're very conservative on some plays and who plays the parts oh you're talking about traditional who, casting traditional uh, traditional casting is that what you call it they well colorblind casting and gender blind casting and Explain that. Recently, it has become the in thing to use colorblind casting and genderblind casting. It's the same type of thing we run into when some idiot wants to update a show. My first question in all three of these is why? What do we gain by this? Now, I'm not opposed to this. I've, I've done some, uh, some switching, but there needs to be a reason for it. Don't just do it because you can. Give me an example. There was a production of Faust where they made Faust a female. You can't do that. That just flies in the face of everything that's in the script, the text, the background. There are others who say, oh, no, no, no. The text is just one more thing you can play with. Well, no. You're doing a play. You're doing a script. You're telling a story. And it needs to be believable. First of all, in medieval Germany, there would not have been a female professor to begin with. It's just not possible. So you're, you're going against that, and you have to, you're asking the audience to accept this. 
And the audience, I would have great difficulty sitting in the audience and seeing that because it's, it's, not, it's not feasible. I'm willing to buy a lot of things, but it seems to me, my, what I always tell students and anybody who listens, colorblind, genderblind, I don't care unless it makes a difference. In the case of Othello, for instance, Othello has to be black. Can't be white, has to be black. Race is an issue in that show. Desdemona has to be white. She can't be black. It has to be that way, otherwise the show falls apart. I'm, I'm a new director. I want to try new things. I want to bring people out to see the, the, Fine. the show. or what. I'm going to see if that works and brings people out. It's got, their, it's got their interest. Oh, yeah, we do that. Uh, if you want to do that, you need to be able to tell me why you're doing it. Just okay. because I can doesn't mean you should. Julius Caesar, that poor thing. We've said Julius Caesar in Nazi Germany in the Deep South, in a, a civilization far, far away, uh, all sorts of places. Why not put it in Rome? If I'm not sharp enough to pick up the fact that these are universal themes, then putting everybody in black leather jackets and jock straps isn't going to help. It's going to confuse me. And you don't want to do that. Oh, but it's so universal. Fine. Fine. You got it. It's universal. Do the show as written. You don't want to do the show as written? Do another show. King Lear, woman. Broadway now. Yeah, well, Broadway does a lot of things. doesn't mean they should. Yes, <clears throat> you could switch Lear. Lear is one of the few ones that you could switch genders and it would probably work. I'm not sure I would, but you probably could. Now, what, what you do, though, you're changing the dynamics. When the king gives up his kingdom and he's going to parcel off everything to the daughters, that's one thing. With the queen uh, parceling up everything to her sons, that's a, that's a little different. There was a show on Broadway about a sculptor who was paralyzed and couldn't, uh, their, their art was gone, they couldn't do anything again. Successful show. Somebody came in later on and switched genders, it was a female. And interestingly, the audience didn't care about the female artist as they cared about the male artist. Now you can claim sexism, you can claim all sorts of things, I'm just telling you that was the result of the show. Odd Couple has been switched around and we have, uh, instead of the two men, it's two women. I've not seen that one. I think you're asking for problems with it because of the way it's set up with the Pigeon Sisters and all that. But yeah, you can do anything, but you need to know why you're doing it. Why you're doing it. Yeah. When you say why you're doing it, why people would want to see this, well, how, how, do, you get, how do you get a handle on that? Why, you say, why would you want to see that you, you, you tell ask your friends because you're about ready to produce it or direct it and you ask your friends would you want to see this is that how you find the the why no i would never ask why they would want to see it how do you get the answer to why am i doing this i listen to my gut and i try to analyze it and think it through uh, i just not too long ago finished doing a show called salome reversed for years, I'd wanted to do Salome, the Oscar Wilde play. And finally, I thought, I'm going to do this. So I got out my copy of Wilde, and I read through Salome. I thought, my, this is talky. No problem. We'll just do a little red pen here and take care of it. What I found very quickly was what Oscar Wilde has written for Salome, it's so tightly written that once you start cutting, you run into all sorts of problems because the show then begins to unravel. So I thought, all right, all right, all right. We'll, we'll just put this on the back burner. I still want to do it. So time passed. I moved to New York, and uh, a production came into New York and did Salome. And I went to see it. And Al Pacino was playing Herod and got critical reviews because he was playing the Godfather. Well, all you have to do is analyze the thing. Herod is the original Godfather. The woman, I, I would spare you her name. Fortunately, I don't remember it. She was horrible. But I, what I took out of the show was the fact that, okay, the show will still work. You better have some actors, but it will still work. Okay, time passes again, and I thought, hmm, what if, you may remember <clears throat> years ago, um, there was a, a woman 
who t- put her children, I think there were two of them in the back seat of the car. Yes. And drove into the water and killed them because yes. some demon had told us or whatever. Horrible. And I thought, now that's interesting. And so I thought a little further and I thought, okay, we hear on almost a daily basis the fact that it's the dirty old man and the young woman having nothing to do with the recent situation in New York. Uh, that's, we read that almost a daily basis. It doesn't shock us anymore. Should, but it doesn't. But what if you switched it and you had the dirty old woman with the young boy? There was a school teacher years ago who dallied with one of her students and became pregnant. The nation was shocked. Yes, yes, I remember. She lost her job, lost her marriage, did the prison, end up marrying her husband with her love child. They're since divorced. But that one intrigued me, and I thought, okay, let's go for this. And so what I did was to go into Salome, the wild script, and the first thing I did was reverse all the genders. And immediately you have problems. If you have, first of all, with the guards, yes, there were female guards, but nobody's going to believe that. You need to keep the guards male. Okay, we kept the guards male. The captain of the guards. One of the first scenes is the captain of the guards lusting after Salome. Okay, if we're going to make Salome male, and you have the male captain of the guards lusting after Salome, that turns it into a gay play, which, frankly, I think would play. But that's not what Wilde wrote. So I killed off the captain of the guards and gave his lines to the head female server. So now we have the the female lusting after the young male. Okay. And I ended up, we switched Herod and Herodias uh, genders, and um, the rest of the people didn't really matter much. So what we ended up with was a male Salome, a female Tetrarch lusting after him, Dance of the Seven Veils did all of that, and it was highly successful. We got a number of awards from it for it from the Theater Association of New York State. And one of the things that, that was interesting to me, a friend of mine saw the show who certainly knew the original and told me after, he said it was very interesting. He said, I found it a little creepy. Mm. And I thought, good, we've done our job. Mm-hmm. Because now we're back to what essentially what Oscar Wilde wrote, and we're now getting the same reaction from the audience that Wilde got in the Victorian era with the shock about the dirty old man with the young girl. Now we have the dirty old woman, uh, we don't talk about cougars or whatever, cougars rather, sorry, um, with the young boy. And that's the same story, yes. but we have a different reaction to it. Why? It's the same story. So in that case, I did switch genders. And that was because you answered for yourself the why. Yes. And how it would play. And kept the story. With all this switching around, with all this editing. Fab. And you won awards. Yes, we did. <laughs> I think that's what's important, that you, you keep the story. Um, I saw Julius Caesar one time where he was gender blind to the point that you didn't know who was what. As I recall, there was a male Caesar and a female Brutus, and it was it was a nightmare trying to follow it out. Whenever someone came on stage, you had to stop and think, "Now, who are you?" Mm. Okay, that, that that was a mistake. Right. Should never have done right. that one. Right. I I know you're really busy, uh, but I have to get in these these last few things. What is good on uh, in, in New York on Broadway now? What do you like? on Broadway now, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> I, I, I'm waiting for West Side Story to, uh, to, uh, well, West Side to Story, land here. It's coming back. Yes, so. West Side Story is a perfect example of updating a show that worked. <clears throat> and the reason it works is because they kept the same relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, we no longer have the, the, the two Italian warring factors. Uh, we're into Puerto Ricans and, and, and that sort of thing. But the relationships are the same. Tony, Maria, that's the same thing. And that works. Mm-hmm. What did not work, there was a, an attempted production, it was full production, where they took um, the opera Marriage of Figaro and updated it to uh, the Trump Towers. 
that was a terrible mistake should have never been done. Because as soon as you move that to where the servant could marry the master, the show falls apart. Mm. That would leave it alone. Leave yes. it where it was. Yes. You so, so, so what, what is good on Broadway now, do you think? Hey there, Moving Your Energy Differently community. If you feel you got some practical insights and achievement strategies from listening to this podcast, I would be over the top grateful if you would go to my Twitter handle, at Kerry Ruff, and leave a comment. I thank you so very much. You have made my day, uh, my year. (laughs) Thank you very much.